Welcome to another message from Columbus First Assembly. Thanks for listening as we strive to learn and live the word and ways of God. Our hope is that you're encouraged by today's message. COVID hit this church again and I was ill, um, I had already invited uh, Nathan Turney to be a guest here. Uh, he is one of our Indiana missionaries and he has been on the mission field for quite a while. And so um, we had to cancel him in November and when I had surgery, it'll be two weeks tomorrow that I had my surgical procedure, I was looking to how many weeks will I not be able to really preach and I decided just to allow myself one additional week. I'll be back in the pulpit, Lord willing, next week. I have so many things I want to share with you. But um, so I contacted Nathan to see if he might have this weekend open. He did. And so he graciously uh, drove here. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about uh, his uh, where they're going to be serving as missionaries, but he's actually bringing the word this morning also. So as we set things up, here's a, uh, here's a short video that will give you an idea about the ministry that uh, Nathan and his family are going to be involved in, and then he'll come right up after the video. We've been serving as Assemblies of God World missionaries in Asia Pacific for 24 years now, initially working as missionaries in Thailand and now for the past two decades, we've been directing the Asia's Little Ones ministry where we've seen God dramatically transform the lives of orphaned, abandoned, and vulnerable kids through homes, healthcare, education, and nutrition. For the past two years, God had been speaking to our hearts that as we approached the new decade, He was moving us in a new ministry direction. And as we prayed and sought Him, um, to our surprise, He brought a country to our attention that had not previously been on our radar. And we had the opportunity the past um, year to take several ministry trips there. And as we began to interact with the people and learn the needs specific to the country of New Zealand, God began to birth within our heart um, just a real strong burden and a desire to take the truth and hope of the gospel there. New Zealand is a melting pot of very diverse ethnic groups. There are people of European descent, there are Islanders, Asians, people from the Middle East. It also is extremely secularized with over half of the population rejecting any religious connection of any kind. We actually will be the first Assemblies of God world missionaries to be assigned to New Zealand. And God is leading us to strategically plant an international church in Auckland, the largest city. And we want to invite you to partner with us in this new endeavor to provide hope, healing, and restoration for the lost in New Zealand. Good morning, First Assembly. Happy New Year. What a privilege it is to be able to be here with you on this very first Sunday of 2021. I know like you, I'm glad for 2020 to be done with move on to uh, better days ahead. We know that God has got great things in store. Unfortunately, I'm traveling alone. Oh, first of all, thank you, Pastor Rick. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share and be a part of the service this morning. I'm traveling alone. My, my family is not with me, but you saw on the video uh, four of our kids that are at home. We actually have a total of six kids, three girls and three boys. We call them our biological Brady Bunch. And I was in, uh, I was in northern Thailand doing some ministry and a Thai lady 
asked me about my family, and when I told her I had six kids, she gasped and said, six kids? How many wives do you have? <laughs> I, of course, responded, well, just, just one. She said, well, is she still living? <laughs> said, Last time I checked. <laughs> We've had the joy of working in Asia Pacific for the last 24 years in a variety of ministry capacities, working mostly with the compassion type of ministries in Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, as you saw in the video there. And, and it was quite to our surprise when God brought New Zealand onto the radar for us, a completely different context of ministry, a whole different engagement. I mean, oh, God sometimes surprises you with the direction that he will lead you as you walk and follow him. Now, generally, you know, when you hear about New Zealand, you think about beautiful scenery. That's kind of what first comes to mind, this, this tourist destination. And that, and that is true, especially in the South Island, beautiful mountains and fjords and volcanic activity that's there. <clears throat> but in stark contrast to the beautiful scenery is the barren spirituality. Like Europe, uh, Christianity was prominent in the past, but today secular atheism is the dominant worldview which it attempts to try and extract God out of the equation of life. I mean, no, that never works very well. And the result of that, it leaves devastation, broken hearts, broken lives. And one indication that we see that in New Zealand is of developed nations, statistically it has one of the highest teen suicide rates. You can be surrounded by beautiful vistas, but it will never fill the God-sized void in your heart. And God steps down into broken humanity to bring transformation, to bring healing, restoration, and redemption. And we've had the joy of seeing that numerous times over and over throughout our years of working in Asia Pacific. Uh, Jerry is one young man that comes to mind. Jerry was a part of a, a slum community in Cebu, Philippines. Young man, as a result of just kind of the impoverished environment that he was in, just began to feel hopeless and despondent, and so he began to turn to, uh, to substance abuse and drugs, trying to, to deal with that ache in his heart. But by the grace of God, he got involved in a, or became aware of a youth mentoring program that we were a part of in the area. And so he began to attend this weekend youth mentorship. And if you ask Jerry why he came, he would tell you he came for the free snacks. I mean, with a teenage boy, snacks are pretty high on the importance list. I've got a 15-year-old. He's eating me out of house and home. But when he came, he found a whole lot more than chips, cookies, and crackers. He found Christ. He was so captivated by the message of the gospel that God loved him, had a plan for his life. He surrendered his life to Christ and that changed, dramatically changed his trajectory. He began to get discipled, grow in the Lord, started to do better in school, graduated, felt God call him into full-time ministry. But because of his poverty situation of his family, the marginalized condition that they were in, he was unable to afford that. We were fortunate by God's provision, able to find him a scholarship. He attended one of the local Bible schools, excelled, graduated with honors, and today, Jerry leads the very ministry that led him to Christ. That's the transformational work of God. Taking a young man who is on a path of destruction, putting him on a path of light, and now he's a trophy of God's grace in his community. An example to those that knew him 
before and after. Why? Because God loves and values the lost. Can you say amen to that? You know, value is kind of an interesting thing. How do we assign value and worth? There are certain things, you know, like a bushel of wheat or a barrel of oil that are determined by supply and demand issues on the global markets. Other things are a little more subjective. Have you notice that? Personal preference, taste, kind of barren to the, the equation there. I remember being at, at an auction of a lady who passed away, and as all of her possessions were being li- liquidated, you could tell what she valued, what her passion was. And interestingly enough, it was hedgehogs. From porcelain figurines to puppets to pictures, this lady had an unhealthy obsession with hedgehogs. Rather strange what we value. And you probably experienced like I have, but during times of crisis, there, there brings some clarity on what really has value. I kind of call it that crisis clarity moment. I had one of those seminal moments during my teenage years. It was February of 1986. A year and a half earlier, my parents had moved our family to the Philippines where they began their missionary engagement, their first time working in overseas ministry. And in February 1986, President Ferdinand and his wife Imelda Marcos were in power. Imelda famously known for her 3,000 pairs of shoes, and I've seen them, quite impressive. But the discontent over the rather abusive dictatorial uh, leadership that they had had, the oppression, the hostility, finally erupted into mass discontent. Large-scale protests began to develop and gather in Metro Manila where we were living. At times, literally hundreds of thousands of people filled this large area along Edsa Boulevard. There were Two military bases, Camp Aguinaldo and Camp Crami, that were separated by this large Etza highway. And at times, tens of thousands, even over 100,000 people would gather together. And to give you a little bit of an idea of where we were in that mix there, when you walked out of our house and you looked up the hill, you could see the back wall of Camp Aguinaldo. We were right in the thick of it. Things began to unravel. Parts of the military were defecting away from Ferdinand Marcos. Mass demonstrations. It was uncertain whether or not he was going to order those military that were still loyal to him to fire upon the demonstrators that at that point had been mostly peaceful. We at times could hear military uh, jets flying overhead, helicopters, automatic weapons that were being discharged. Very tense, very uncertain. In this particular morning, my dad got a phone call and got word that, that there was going to be an armed force of some of those that had defected away. They were going to come up below our house and use the road that was in front of our house as a point of attack and approach against Camp Aguinaldo. And so they began to, my parents began to feel that it was an appropriate time to vacate the house and to find safer places to stay. And so my father came to us my older brother, my younger sister, and said, you know, we have just a few moments. Gather what you want in a small bag. We're going to have to flee. We may have to leave the country if things really begin to unravel. And so I can remember looking around my bedroom thinking, what 
do I value? What am I going to take? What am I going to leave? What will I never see again? Now, obviously, you know, as a teenage boy, I didn't have high-value content in that bedroom. Things of more sentimental value. But still, it was very clear to me at that age, the greatest thing that we had was our own personal safety and well-being. So we fled. Fortunately, more of the military defected away. President Marcos fled the country. And democracy was reestablished, and my parents continued their missionary engagement. So by the grace of God, things settled on a very peaceful scale with all things considered. What do we value? But the greater question is not what we value, but what does the creator of the universe value? Wouldn't that be the greater question to ask? And I want us to turn this morning to Luke chapter 15 because Jesus answers that. I thought it was interesting that you're reading through the book of Luke, and we're going to accelerate ahead just for a couple chapters here to give you a little bit of a pre-glimpse before your public reading. Luke chapter 15, because here Jesus really unpacks for us what God values, what has the highest price tag on heaven's list. Now, just to refresh your memory, let's just kind of read verses verse 1 and 2 to reset the stage here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we all of a sudden we see there's a little bit of different perspective, a value system already kind of brewing here under the surface. And so then Jesus uses this interaction to launch into a teaching session, unlike any we see anywhere else in the Scripture, anywhere else in the Gospels, where he tells us in consecutive order, one after another, three parables regarding things that were lost. Nowhere else do we see this, where Jesus takes this much time, this much effort to unpack and to kind of really drive home a key theological point what does God value? Now, you, I know you're familiar with the passage. All watching online, you may have read it many times. Where Jesus shares a parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or the prodigal son. How many of you ever lost something before? Your keys, your wallet, your kids, your mind. Those two things may have been closely correlated. Jesus uses that as a connection point with his audience. So let's read on here to verse number three, the first parable. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he follows it up with a parallel parable. Verse number eight. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, 
She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we'll stop there just a minute and reflect on these two parallel parables. Fascinating, isn't it? Why would Jesus share two things, two parables, that are so closely correlated? Well, he kind of affirms what we married men have suspected for many times, that men and women have a different way of processing information. How many of you found that to be true? You notice in the first verse, what man, when he loses a sheep, and then what woman, when she loses a coin? We process things differently. You know, when a, a, a lady stands in front of her closet and says, I have nothing to wear, she's thinking, I have nothing appropriate for the occasion at hand. When a man stands in the closet and says, I, thinks, and says, I have nothing to wear, he's thinking, I hope it's warm outside because I have nothing to wear. I think that's probably where the colloquialism, buck naked, came from. This poor guy, Buck, went to his closet and said, I have nothing to wear. We process things differently. And so Jesus takes extreme effort to communicate so that everyone in the audience understands what he's wanting to convey. How much God values the lost. We see so many similarities between the two. The diligent search, the shepherd with the sheep, the lady with the coin. We see the reaction when it's retrieved, the rejoicing, calling together the friends and neighbors. And then he drives home this incredible point. In fact, let's reread it. Verse number seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. More joy. It's just a a slight little taste of what the reaction in heaven is when somebody who has been separated, lost, is restored back to the family of God. With the woman, he says, in that reflection there in verse number 10, he says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is sharing from a firsthand perspective. From someone who has come from heaven to earth, he now helps us to have a greater understanding of what takes place in heaven. We seek and we celebrate what's significant. We seek and we celebrate what's special. And the audience understood the value of a sheep. It was an agrarian society. Many of them were shepherds themselves. Like, interestingly enough, you know, New Zealand is known for the number of sheep that it has there. It has the largest sheep per person ratio. Roughly 25 million sheep, 5 million people. That's a pretty, five sheep to every person. That's a lot of lamb chops. That's a lot of wool. They understand the value of sheep. The audience understood the market value of sheep. For the woman who lost the coin, the silver drachma, which they anticipate probably about a day's wage, her future 
would be impacted whether or not she had that, whether it was a dowry or part of her savings. It was precious, valuable. They understood the value. And so Jesus takes these very practical stories that his audience would understand and relate with, connects it to how heaven reacts, to communicate how great God's love is. Now, for the audience, they were familiar with the teaching that if you were repentant and you came to God, God would extend forgiveness. But the idea that the creator of the universe was seeking and searching for them diligently, effort being extended, and not giving up until found, that was a radical new concept. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he moves into rather a scandalous story. And let's read on. I know it's probably familiar to you, but let's reread it to refresh our memories here. Verse number 11, and he said, his third parable, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, or your translation might say wild or riotous living. Verse number 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amazing story. In this context, communicating to this audience, this privileged young Jewish boy basically spits in his father's face and says, I wish you were dead. I want your inher my inheritance now. And goes off and says, I'm going to find fulfillment and happiness on my own terms. And goes, it says, through riotous, wild living, finds himself hitting rock bottom. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus could not have drawn a more graphic picture of somebody who has hit rock bottom than what he does 
in this context with this community. From someone who was of Israel's elect now to an outcast, from someone to privilege now to poverty. But even more than that, he is feeding pigs, wanting to eat what he's offering them. Now, you're probably aware, because of Pastor Rick's teaching, your own Bible study, that pigs were not highly thought of in the Jewish community. How many knew that? You know, for me personally, thanks to bacon and pork chops and cured meat, I hold that ugly animal in high esteem. Amen. But they were despised by the Jewish community. They were repulsive. They were the most unclean of the unkosher animals. Not only were they prohibited from eating them, they were not even allowed to raise them. Representing unclean and something apart and separate from what God had designed that community to be. And so for Jesus to draw this picture of this young man who's now feeding pigs, the most despised of the animals, wanting to eat their food, he's drawing this picture of what can happen as far as how somebody can fall into the depths of sin and destitute and separation. But he does not leave him there. The young man, when he comes to his senses, he returns home, hoping to be just reinstated as a hired hand. He knows he's brought incredible disgrace and shame on the family name. He's disgraced himself. He's hoping maybe through good works and effort he can somewhat earn the good graces back into the family and the community. But to the shock of the audience, as Jesus Follows through with the story, the son is embraced by the father. Look back at those verses there. The father says to his servant, bring the best robe, put it on him, ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it and celebrate. It was full reinstatement back as a son. Friend, I don't care how far you've fallen, how bad your choices have been. When you return to God, he reinstates us back into the family. Can you say amen to that? No longer will the stain of sin be there, but complete forgiveness and restoration. Incredible. It would have been shocking to the audience Because this young man didn't fall into the depths that he had because of misfortune. It was because of his own poor choices. But that didn't matter to the father. When he returned, he was embraced. Love extended. Forgiveness granted. Restoration complete. Amazing stories. And we see as Jesus moves through this chapter, there is a progression that takes place. He moves from one of a hundred to one of ten to one of two. And as the ratio diminishes, the intensity of his message increases because it's always one. Always one. 
back in the mid-1990s when we first began our, our ministry work um, in Thailand, God very graphically communicated this to me personally. We had only been on the ground just a couple of weeks, just fresh missionaries. We were staying temporarily with some colleagues of ours while we were looking for our own accommodations in Bangkok, the capital. And I was traveling down into the heart of the city to register for language school, so we began to get a training in the Thai language. We could communicate the gospel. And I had my map out. How many remember the days of maps? For your younger generation, it's that paper thing that you unfold and the streets are on there, and you have to determine where you're at and where you're going, and you navigate the route, you know, back like from the wagon train days. So I had my map out, and I had made it way, my way down, had registered, and I was on my way back, and I was using the public, the public uh, transportation, the bus system. And being lost in a city of 15 million people without being able to communicate on the level of a three-year-old just didn't sound like an adventure I was wanting to have. So I was very diligent in counting streets and looking for landmarks. I wanted to make sure I was going to get off on the right spot and had this map out and hot, the tropical, windows are down, the noise and congestion of the city. And, and I feel somebody slip up and sit down beside me and ask me in excellent English, which got my attention, are you lost? I said, I don't think so. And I looked over, and it was this Thai gentleman in mid-30s. introduced himself. His name was City Pong. We chatted just a moment, and I could see my stop was going to be coming up, and so I told him I'm going to have to get off here in just a minute. And so he asked me, could I have your phone number? I said, sure. I didn't have a phone myself. We hadn't had our accommodations back in the day before cell phones, you know, back in the wagon train days. I gave him the phone number of my missionary friend that we were staying with, got off the bus, went on my way, really didn't think much about the, the, the meeting interaction. A couple weeks went by and we got settled in, found our own apartment and started language school and getting acclimated to the city. And our missionary friends invited us back over one night for a, a meal and so we're sitting around their living room just laughing, having a good time when the phone rings. And to my surprise, my missionary colleague says, Nathan, it's for you. I think, I don't know anybody in this city. Picked up the phone, and as you probably guessed, it was City Pong. We chatted a moment on the phone, and he asked if we could meet a few days later. And so a few days later, we found ourselves at a little roadside cafe down in the heart of Bangkok, I mean, I don't know, friends, I don't know what all is going to be on the marriage supper land, but I can tell you, I bet Thai food is going to be there. Outstanding cuisine. Now, let me warn you, it can be a little bit hot. It's like a brush fire will go through your taste buds. But a couple weeks when they grow back and you start to taste food again, kind of like COVID, you know, when your taste buds start to go back. So we're sitting there eating this hot, spicy food, and I'm sweating from the peppers and from the hot climate and my curiosity got the better of me, and I asked City Pong, why did you call the other night? He said, you know, I had a very disturbing dream a few nights before I gave you a call. I was out in the ocean, out in the Gulf, small little boat. There was a violent storm. The wind was blowing so strong. The waves were tossing and turning the boat. I felt at any moment it would capsize 
and my life would be lost. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I just kept calling out your name in my dream. And when I woke up, I knew I had to give you a call. And when he recounted his dream to me, boy, the Holy Spirit just stirred in my heart. I said, you know, City Pong, when we met on that bus a few weeks ago, it was not by chance. But rather, it was a divine appointment that our Creator put together so that I could tell you that He loves you, that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you. That you don't have to bow at idols, but you can be restored back to Him. In a city of 15 million people, with somebody who doesn't speak the language, God set up a divine appointment for one. For one. And he's able to look at the mass of humanity around our globe and see one. He's able to look at here in Columbus and see one. Here in Indiana and see the one. Here in these words, in these verses, in these parables, Jesus is wanting to communicate how great God's love is for us so that we can embrace it. Friends, what a great thing for, to frame 2021 for us is to have in full focus how great God's love is for us. Regardless of what the days bring, we can rest and stand on that in confidence that God loves us and is walking through us every step away, every step that we take in these next weeks and months to come. And I don't know where you are right now, friend, watching online in the streaming. You may associate with that prodigal in some capacity where you've attempted by your own efforts, by your own rules, by your own path to find fulfillment and happiness, and it's left you broken, disillusioned. Today, God is wanting you to start this year by being embraced by his love. All it takes is turning back to him, placing your faith and trust in him. Full reinstatement, redemption, and restoration. But not only is God wanting us to be embraced by his love, but he's also wanting us to imitate it. Remember how the parable started in verse 1 and 2? You have the Pharisees and the scribes, those that were experts in the law, in the Old Testament. But somehow they weren't in alignment with the heart of the one that they were studying. And then after the story of the prodigal son, what's fascinating after the reinstatement here is then Jesus concludes with this final message about the older son. Remember that? Look on down here as we conclude. Verse number 25, now the older son who was in the field and he came and drew near to the house, heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf, but he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of your came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, the father said, Son, you're always with me. All that, a, all that is mine is yours. And it concludes with verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate him and glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus begins the parables with those that are experts in the law that are out of alignment with him. And he ends the parables with the older brother who's also out of alignment with the father. Isn't that fascinating? He not only wants us to embrace his love, he wants us to imitate it. He wants us to emulate it so that what heaven places a high price tag on, we would affirm and say, amen, let it so be in my life. I can invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to conclude here in just a minute. Let me give you some practical things. How can we align our hearts with the Father? Friends, can I tell you, Praying for the lost is one of the greatest things we can do that will help our heart connect with the heart of God. I know each of you know individuals that are lost, family members, friends. We can pray with greater fervency, knowing that we are aligning ourselves with heaven when we pray that they would be restored back to the family of God. And the beautiful thing is that prayer is not limited by proximity. We can touch the globe. One of the greatest things you can do for a missionary is to pray. As we go into the secularized environment of New Zealand to plant a new beachhead on the battlefront there, we need God's presence. We need God's presence and his power to break through the cynicism, to display miraculously God's miracle-working touch, that happens through prayer. And you can be a part of that. You're not limited by this proximity. Not only by praying, but friends, God has given us the opportunity to invest in the kingdom. We can give generously to the work of God right here, right here in Columbus. God has blessed us and we open-handedly release that into the kingdom work. Eternal destinies will be changed. What a privilege and an opportunity. It helps us to raise the cause of Christ above our own personal comfort levels when we give generously to the kingdom. And then lastly, God has given us the opportunity to be his testimony in our community. We all were lost at one point. And all he's asking of us is to share what God has done for us. What it means to be restored to him. The forgiveness, the purpose and meaning that comes 
from being a part of the family of God, the redemption, the restoration. You can testify to that because you've experienced it. And your personal testimony is one of the greatest tools that you have in this community. What an opportunity God has given us. Another year, new doors opened, new possibilities. Let's frame them, first of all, with an understanding of how great God's love is for us, for the world, and embrace it like we're embracing the arms of the Father. And secondly, let's imitate it. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, we stand in awe of your goodness to us. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for restoring us back into relationship with you. God, I pray for those that are here, those that are watching online, if there's any that have not surrendered their hearts to you, that this would be that moment of decision, of placing faith and trust in you, of turning back to you and being embraced by your love. And then God, challenge us afresh this year through our prayers, through our giving, through our own personal testimony that lives will be touched and transformed. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Columbus First Assembly. We hope that you've been encouraged in your spiritual journey. If you're not part of a local church and would like to attend one of our regular services, our church is located at the corner of 10th and Iowa Street in Columbus, Indiana. Our Sunday morning worship services start at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday evening studies begin at 7 p.m. And while you're online, check out our website at columbusfirstassembly.org for details and information about our church. You will also find other messages and series that you can listen to or download. Thanks for spending some time with us and for taking advantage of this resource from Columbus First Assembly, where we strive to learn and live the word and ways of God.